today we begin our study of First Peter, that is Peter's first epistle. And as with any portion of scripture, we're dealing with something that was written to other people in a different context, cultural, historical, social, political, almost 2,000 years ago. Knowing that, we have a responsibility to understand what the author is saying by putting the writing into context, that historical, social, cultural, and even theological context. And by clarifying what was readily understandable to the original readers, but because of the passage of time and because we live in a different culture, what may not be so understandable to us. And then we need to make the application. In order to do this, we have to keep two principles in mind. First of all, we need to recognize that various portions of Scripture may have been intended for a very specific audience, for people in a given place and time. And we need to ask, okay, it was written specifically to them, but what of it is applicable to people of different times, that is, to us? How does it apply to us? And then we need to recognize that we are different from the original readers, which means that we have to sort of reapply it to our situation when and where we are. For example, here in 1 Peter, in chapter 2, if you'll look at it, in verses 18, 19, and 20, Peter writes this, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable... For a man, if he bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Your job may seem to you to be a form of slavery, but I would doubt that many of you have been physically abused by your employer. You may have been, I don't know, but... What Peter writes here, I think, was accessible to first century Christians. And I I think unlike other writings in the New Testament, many of the readers of this this first epistle may, in fact, have been slaves, maybe even the majority of them. And so Peter needs to address their situation. So we don't have slavery, but we do have social relationships in which we have obligations that the people you work for, you have certain obligations that you are, in fact, to meet. And so what Peter writes does, in fact, have application to us, I think, in our situations today. We simply need to make the transition from understanding, okay, we don't have slavery where I live. I am not a slave. But what Peter wrote to those first readers, I can, in fact, reapply in my situation. And then what about what we find in the next chapter, in First Peter chapter 3? where he is writing to Christian women, to the wives. And I'll just begin at verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Okay, uh, if we're not careful, we might say this, this is obviously for women of a different time and place and this no longer has application to us. 
Um, we need to be careful that as we read Scripture, we do understand that they were in a different place, a different culture. But let's not be so quick as to say, well, it has no application to us today. And by the way, I just we'll get to this passage somewhere down the road. But I think we fail to appreciate that when Paul and Peter wrote to Christian women that they were to be submissive to their husbands. I think that the original readers might have said, hello, I mean, Jewish women, Gentile women had no choice but to be submissive to their husbands. And they were considered second class citizens. So why does Paul waste the ink and the paper and why does Peter do the same to tell Christian women to be submissive? In fact, what they wrote was quite radical because as men and women come to faith in Christ, they are now brothers and sisters. As we saw in Galatians, in Christ there is neither male nor female. Well, if that's the case, then how can you tell part of the congregation to be submissive? Well, we'll get to that in chapter 3, but I would argue that what he writes, in fact, was not what was going on in the culture where women were second-class citizens. What he wrote was quite radical that Christian women were to make a conscious choice to be submissive to their husbands. So we need to keep these things in mind as we study Scripture. Today we will begin by looking at the first two verses of Peter's letter here. We've seen this before in other epistles that it followed the structure of letter writing of that time. You have, first of all, the person who is writing the letter. Secondly, the persons who are addressed. Thirdly, there is a greeting of some sort. And then finally, you have thanksgiving for the recipient's well-being. As in other epistles, I would argue there is so much in this opening sentence, a sentence that we might be tempted to sort of sort of skim over or sort of say blah, 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 whatever. You know, it's Peter writing to these people and then let's get to the meat of the letter for the good stuff. I think he has much to say even here at the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. First, the writer. Well, to anyone familiar with the New Testament or with the Christian faith, the name Peter brings up a whole host of images. He is the renamed disciple. His name originally is Simon. He's given the name Cephas in Aramaic or Petros in Greek, which means stone. In English, it comes to us as Peter. He is the most vocal of the disciples, and we hear some profound things from him in the Gospels. Several that come to mind for me in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in John 6, something that Zib read to us several weeks back, From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. For all this, 
Many people remember Peter as the disciple who denied Jesus three times after saying that he would gladly die for Jesus. He is the one who was restored after the resurrection when three times, as he denied Jesus three times, three times he is asked, do you love me? And then he is told, feed my sheep, indicating that he was restored to a place of ministry. On the day of Pentecost, he is the one whose sermon is recorded in Acts chapter 2 and who said at the end of his sermon, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the disciple who was called to go to the house of Cornelius and there he preached to the Gentiles and there we hear him say, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. He is the one that Paul went to see after his conversion, went to see him in Jerusalem, as Paul tells us in Galatians 1. He's also the one that Paul rebuked for having eaten with Gentile believers. When the men from Jerusalem come, he withdraws from his Gentile brothers and sisters. Paul writes, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. So as we read Peter, a whole host of images may assault us. Which image should we hold on to? What image did the readers, the first readers, hold to as they read this letter? By the way, as this letter is constructed, there is no hint of personal contact between Peter and these people other than this particular letter. Um, We find none of the personal aspect that we find in Paul's letters. It seems that Peter was, in many ways, writing to complete strangers. Um, But he wrote to teach them and to encourage them, even though he did not know them. So again, what image would these readers have of this man they do not know? Well, we don't know, and on some level it doesn't matter. But we see that Peter identifies himself. This is the image we should keep in mind. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is what we are to have in mind as we read this letter. An apostle, one who is sent, and he is sent and invested with the authority of the one who sent him. That is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus told his disciples that first Easter evening, as he appeared to them, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. His message comes from Jesus. He has been sent by Jesus. And in that capacity, he writes this letter in which he conveys the promises and the commands that God has given for his people. And so we are to listen carefully to what he has to say. We are to take it to heart. We are to apply it in our lives. What about the recipients? The recipients are categorized or are described in three ways. That they are God's elect, that they are strangers in the world, and that they are scattered. As I said, I don't think there's any personal aspect to this letter. So it's not as though Peter knows these people, but he wants these people to know who they themselves are. He wants to identify his audience. And he spends, as one commentator puts it, a great deal of energy in doing this. One writer has said that this is perhaps the most important contribution of this letter 
that's rather remarkable because we have five chapters and one writer says it's actually in the first two verses that we have the most important aspect of this letter. Two verses that I would argue that oftentimes people skip over. Peter seeks to impress on his readers their true identity, that they are God's elect, that they are strangers in the world, that they are scattered, or as some others have put it, that they are chosen, that they are exiles, and they belong to the diaspora. One author has noted that these first two at least seem to be oxymoronic, that they are chosen strangers, that they are elect exiles. It seems like you've got to make up your mind. It's one or the other. But I believe that Peter, in identifying his readers for their benefit and not his, wants to point out the tension of what it means to be a Christian in the world, and not only in the first century, but now in the 21st century. These people are not merely elect, they are God's elect. And yet, on the other hand, they are strangers, they are exiles, they are separate from their neighbors, resident aliens in a foreign land. We will see more of this in chapter 2. Uh, verse 11, that they are aliens and strangers in the world, but they are also God's people. The basis of the identity of these people in this letter is, in fact, what is true of all of God's people, that they are chosen. And by the way, this is fleshed out in Trinitarian terms. Not only have they been chosen by God the Father, they have been sanctified by God the Spirit, that they may obey God the Son. In this passage, particularly in verse number two, we find three phrases which indicate the origin, the manner, and the goal of their election as God's people. First of all, their election took place because God the Father foreknew them. If you look at verse two, who having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This does not mean that God looked into the future and he saw who in fact would accept his son as their savior and then chose them or elected them. Knowledge, as we've seen in the past year, in the Bible, always has action attached to it. It is impossible for God to simply know something, as we think of knowing, that he has this bit of information tucked away somewhere in his infinite mind. God cannot know something and not do something about it. He cannot know a person and not have a relationship By the way, that's why Jesus says, you know, when people say, Lord, Lord, he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That is to say, knowledge has with it a relationship component. It always has a personal aspect to it. You may remember that some months back we looked at the matter of knowing that in the modern era, we have a radically different view of knowledge than what we find in Scripture. For us, there is the person who knows and then the object or the person who is known. Um, They're separate, distinct entities. And so, in the modern era, we come to think of knowledge as something that is separate, that belongs to me as the knower, and that isn't really connected to the thing or the person that I know. In the modern era, we believe that we can have solid and unquestioned knowledge. You know, uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. You know, I have this knowledge independent of all things. As we saw, there are 
sort of the more optimistic view, and I seem to remember when I went through uh, the matter, we talked about knowing a chair, that I, in the modern era we say, I am here and I, Damon Woods, I know that that is a chair right there. That's the more optimistic modern view. Well, not everyone is an optimist. The more pessimistic would say, uh, I am Damon Woods, and I, I seem to think that that may in fact be a chair over there. But it's still this separateness. It is in scripture that in fact we see that a relationship is involved in knowledge. It isn't simply something that is in our head. There is in fact a real personal aspect to knowing. That there is a dialogue, if you wish, a conversation that takes place between the knower and the thing known. So when we read about God knowing something, even foreknowing something, I think we need to be very careful that we don't think of God as this, this immense, infinite mind, if you wish, infinite computer that has all this information stored in there. And that one of the bits of information he had stored in there is that a certain individual on a certain day would come to faith in Christ. It's not that way at all. It is that God's knowledge involves relationship and involves choice that comes from his love. It is the knowledge of God that makes one a child of God. The immediate objection, I think, as fallen people is that that seems so unfair. It seems so unfair, to which I would respond in two ways. First of all, reading a part of what Paul wrote in Romans 9. I would encourage you to read the whole chapter, but he says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That is the foundation of us being the people of God. The second thing I would tell you is that without God's knowledge, without God's action, no one would become a child of God. We have been cast out of his presence. We have been prevented from entering again. Only he has the knowledge and action that makes it possible for us to once again be reconciled to God. As Paul said, it all depends on God's mercy. So the origin is God's knowledge. The second part is that God accepts us, and this is brought about by the Holy Spirit, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, there in verse 2. Just as I mentioned from Romans 9, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort. That we are the children of God has been brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is he who has transferred us from darkness into light, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. This indicates that from the beginning, here within our living time, because God knew us even before the world was created, but within our time, it is the Spirit who is at work. It is He who is active. It is He who has put a mark on us, a seal on us, that we are God's people. It is He who has given us life that we might walk in this new path. Which leads us to the third aspect, the third identifying aspect of God's choosing and the purpose is that we would show obedience for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood you see God's knowing of us was not without action it was not without purpose it was to bring us into a relationship 
And that relationship was not without purpose as well. It's not some casual manner that somehow God chose us and now we get our ticket punched and now we're on our way to heaven. It's not a casual matter at all. And it is seen in the phrase, sprinkling by his blood. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. Many people know, if nothing else from the movie, but if you've read Exodus, about Israel going to Mount Sinai. Part of the story I think that people usually forget is found in chapter 24. Let me read to you verses 3 through 8. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the sprinkling of blood. Whenever we hear the phrase, the blood of the covenant, we think of the Lord's Supper, which we have just observed. This is the new covenant in my blood. The old covenant is the sprinkling of blood. And Peter uses that image to say, listen, God the Father knew you and the Spirit has brought you. And it is for a real relationship of obedience which is signified the image of sprinkling of blood. That the blood of Christ is sprinkled on us. It's not a casual relationship. This is a covenantal relationship. Chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, we are called to obedience to the Son. We are in covenant relationship. So we are God's chosen people. This is wonderful. Yeah, but then the second description of these readers is that they are strangers. They are exiles. And the third is that they are scattered. They belong to the diaspora. That they are strangers in the world of the diaspora would not have come as a a surprise to the recipients of this letter. But the language, I think, would have been unfamiliar to many Gentile Christians. This is the language of Israel. Whenever you talk about the diaspora in the first century, you're talking about the Jews, the exile. They've been scattered, the ten lost tribes. They've been lost. Well, the Israel of God, as Paul writes in Galatians 6, they are Christians, they are God's people. They will experience the trials of being foreigners, even though they're in their home country. The erosion of identity and roots. They are no longer considered to be like everyone else. And they will have to endure slander rather than praise. Until the Jews came along, Christians had not experienced what it meant to be violently torn from their homeland. But now as they become the people of God, like the Jews, they are now experiencing this sensation of being home and yet being not at home at all. Because they have committed themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, it has transformed them. And now they are on the margins of respectable society. 
Allegiance to Jesus has won for them animosity, scorn, and defamation. If you are a stranger in your own country, if you are scattered even though you are at home, there are several temptations that will come up. The first is to say, I can't deal with this tension. I want to belong. And the temptation is to embrace the dispositions and the practices of the people around you. We would call this assimilation. We might also call it defection, that one leaves the Christian faith and returns back to the culture into which one was born. Peter writes this letter to prevent this. He instructs his readers how they are to live. And a brief outline of this letter shows that. From chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 10, it is the basic characteristics of what it means to be a Christian and how we are to live. And then in chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 3, verse 12, the social conduct, what is socially acceptable for Christians, what it is that Christians are supposed to do. It is in this passage that he talks about being a slave. It is also in the passage that I mentioned earlier, how Christian women are supposed to live. But then the bulk of his book, from chapter 3, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 11, how we are to deal with hostility. How we, as God's people living in this world, are supposed to live in the face of hostility. So the first temptation is to give in and to simply say, I can't deal with this tension. I will simply live the way everyone else does. The second temptation is to question one's status before God. If I'm really a child of God, why all this tension? Why all these problems? I'm a child of God. I'm elect. I'm chosen. I'm sanctified. Why am I having all of these difficulties? That's why Peter begins with this magnificent first sentence to ground his readers for them to know God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have done their work. You belong to God. You are his people. Don't ever forget that. There's a letter from the second, uh, the second half of the second century, actually toward closer to the third century, in which uh, a Christian writes a letter uh, to defend the Christian faith. He's been asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's the big deal about being a Christian? We would put it in the category of apologetics. And if you'll bear with me, I'll read to you an extended passage because it fits so well in with what Peter is trying to say to these people. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. Okay? They are citizens where they are. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. They dwell in their own countries, yet simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. 
They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the, by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Peter writes to such people, You live in your country and yet you are a stranger. You live at home and yet you're part of the scattering. You are the people of God. And there will, by definition, be an ongoing tension. Let me write you, brothers and sisters, how you are supposed to live. If not for God's calling, we would lose all hope. And therefore, Peter begins with that. His greeting is simple. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. As we've seen with Paul's writings, a typical Greek greeting was karein, which means greetings. Peter changes this, as the church had, to charis, which means grace. It reflects the basis of God's redemptive work. Why is God chosen? Because of his love and his grace begins with his choosing of a people and it results in the sending of his son. Grace empowers a holy and faithful people. And then we find that the Jewish greeting of peace or shalom is added. This is the outcome of God's work. It begins in grace, it results in peace. The prophets of the Old Testament wrote of shalom as the fulfillment of God's promises. His promise to restore all things. Peace is the word that summarizes a new world. Transform from its fallen state, creation, fall, redemption. Redemption is peace. Life intended by the Creator God. Peace embraces every aspect of our existence, past, present, and future. In a single word, it is God's plan, as Peter said in Acts chapter 3, to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. If you've been with me long enough, you know that I tend to dread the first sermon of any new study of a book in scripture because background, the foundation must be laid. But I think it's necessary and I hope that it is helpful. I want you to keep several things in mind as we leave today. First of all, we should take care how we read scripture. Um, during my time at the uh, University of the Philippines in Diliman, the main campus, I met a scholar from UC Riverside who was there on a Fulbright. And I asked him what he was going to do. He's doing some research. But he made the comment that he needed to go back and read some books and to read them deeply. I thought that was an unusual way to put it, but a great way to put it, to go back and read carefully these, these certain works that are foundational in his field. We need to read scripture deeply and read it carefully and understand that, yes, it was written to people of a different place and time, but it is not without application to us. It is the living word of God. We must read it carefully. And then secondly, we must apply it to ourselves and do so carefully. Do so carefully. I'm reminded of the story of brothers and sisters in Ethiopia. Uh, European and Western missionaries had been there before World War II, and when the Italians invaded, the missionaries left, having translated only the Gospel of Mark into Amharic, uh, the language there. That's all they had. 
Well, after the war was over, the missionaries came back not knowing what they would find. And what they found were thousands upon thousands of Christians that the gospel had spread during their time away. That, in fact, people would meet Sunday afternoons. They would meet under these big trees. And whenever someone would come to faith in Christ, they would stand up and say, I am following Christ. That's how they did it. They weren't told. They simply read the gospel of Mark and that seemed good to them. But one thing that they didn't quite get right was in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells his listeners, beware of dogs. Well, he's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, the Ethiopian brothers didn't know that. And so no Christians owned dogs because of that passage that they had read. We have the complete word of God. We have the benefit of the wisdom of the ages to guide us. We need to take care how we apply this in our lives. So we must read it carefully and apply it carefully. And then we need to remember who we are. Like our brothers and sisters of the first century to whom Peter was writing, we are God's people, chosen by him, and yet strangers and part of the scattering. We're part of the diaspora. As we study First Peter, we will learn the implications of that identity. What does it mean to be God's people? What does it mean to be chosen for obedience, sanctified by the Spirit? And what does it mean to be a stranger in your own neighborhood, in your own country? What does it mean to be as though you were one of the scattering, one of the diaspora? For most of us, there are some of you from Los Angeles, most of us are from a different place. We can relate to this sense of diaspora. But after a while, we set down roots and we begin to feel comfortable. We begin to feel like this is home. And yet tension from time to time arises because we are strangers. We are part of the diaspora. But above all, we are God's people. And by God's grace, I trust that this will be a productive study for us as we go through Peter's first letter. Let's pray together. Father, I fear that at times we suffer from familiarity with your word. And certain things that seem important to us and others that don't. May we, as we begin our study of First Peter, be reminded from simply looking at the first sentence how that every word is important. Everything that is being said has implications. We are to take it to heart. That Peter, your apostle, your sent one, the one you sent with a message, writes to people who are your people, the chosen, sanctified, called to obedience, but at the same time, very much are strangers in their own place. It is as though they have been scattered among the peoples. This means that our lives should be different, will be different, and our attitudes as well. But it all begins with the reality that we are your people. I ask that 
our study of First Peter would be a good one, that we would learn from it, that we would learn not simply information, but that which will push us to action, that we will apply the truths of what is said here, and then we will put it into practice. I thank you once again that we could gather today to worship you, to be home again with brothers and sisters. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?